Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. I invite you to turn your Bibles, if you have one, to Mark 15. And, uh, you know, this is not a a traditional Thanksgiving, post-Thanksgiving sermon, uh, but I can't think of any better reason to give thanks to God than what he has done for us in Christ. And uh, we're talking about the crucifixion this morning, and I've been in sermons before where the pastor, for whatever reason, the person who's bringing God's word, seems to have as the goal for me to feel the grief that the apostles felt the night that Jesus was betrayed, or as people were looking at Jesus hanging from the cross. But as I was reflecting on it this week during Thanksgiving, I was thinking, that may not be the way to approach it necessarily. Uh, In John chapter 12, verse 27, this is what Jesus says. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So it's not saying this is not the end of his ministry, this tragic end. This is the purpose for which he came. So that in Hebrews chapter 12, we read, let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so as I was reading over this this past two weeks and reflecting on it, I was thinking, you know, there's a, and I, this is the word, it's not a real word, but it was the word that came into my mind. There's a, there's a wanting to-ness to the cross for Jesus. He wanted to go for our sakes because that was going to bring about the victory for us. So as we're reading this this morning, um, I want you to kind of think about it as the wanting to-ness of Jesus as we read in Mark chapter 15. And uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. It's a long passage. And so if you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand. But if you need to remain seated, you could do that. But please stand as we read God's word in Mark chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you? the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas, And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowds to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. 
So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at night, the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it, hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us and ask him to bless us. Lord Jesus, we are grateful. We're grateful for this passage. We're grateful for your crucifixion. 
We're grateful for your death that accomplished something wonderful for us on our behalf. We pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that you by your spirit would direct us uh, not just to see you, but to see ourselves. To see ourselves in your mind, to see ourselves in your heart, to see you dying on our behalf, that we may have confidence that we are loved and that we are cherished. And for people who may not have read this passage this morning, Lord, we pray that you would make it come alive in their hearing so they could see how it relates to them and their lives in a, in a world that is very difficult with hearts that are wandering and minds that are often uh, traitors uh, to our own purposes and to your purposes. Would you bless us? And Lord, would you bless me? You know the weariness of my body, and I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to hold forth heavy things uh, with a very weak person. Bless us and be with us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. I was uh, reading an article this morning in the Times, and it was talking about the reality that we're in one of the biggest uh, cultural shifts that's taken place in the United States history. There are people who are leaving the church in great numbers. I think the statistic was something like 40% of Gen Z people would now say they're none, which is a really high percentage of people. And uh, so the, in the article, it was asking various people from that category is, why are they leaving? And the, 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 the reasons were varied. One of them was, you know, the th- uh, scandal in the church, things like Ravi Zacharias and others, and how that uh, besmirches the name of Christ, how the, people look at that and say it's uh, it's uh, full of hypocrites. I, if the church should deal with those kinds of problems long before and just not try to smooth them over. I was like, I kind of like, I get that. Other people said that it was because of strict policies of the church against certain kinds of lifestyle choices and things. Uh, other people said that they just didn't want to have to take a side because we live in such a world in which there's such polarization on ideas. It's very politicized, and they just didn't want to take a side, so they, they'll say, I'm a nun. I don't really want to enter into that question and be part of that statistic. And what's interesting is we read through that, I was, I was recognizing that's a very unique cultural thing that's happened. But we are shaped by our cultural dynamics, even in the way that we approach God and approach Jesus. Our problems with the gospel are often shaped by our own cultural ideas and standards that we encounter day to day that shape us unknowingly. Now, let me give you an example of that. Um, I read an article in the past week, or it was really a testimony, from a guy who was Iranian, uh, formerly Muslim, and it's about how he came to faith in Jesus. And he had a Christian friend who challenged him to read the Bible because his Christian friend said, Jesus is the Son of God, and this guy knew the Quran, and he, he said there are passages in the Quran that say Jesus is not the Son of God, that God is one, and he has no son whatsoever. And so he actually had the two passages open before him as he was reading, reading the passage in the Quran that says God has no son, there's only one God, and then the passage in John 3.16 where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So he's reading these two things, and, it, and then something occurred to him when there was a death of a friend. He said, this isn't just an intellectual proposition that I'm dealing with here. This is, this is true, and someday, one day, I'm going to die 
And I need to know which one of these two things is true. And he said, I, I guarantee that I have not lived as good a life as any uh, Muslim cleric, as any imam. So are they going to go to a different heaven than I go to if I die? And he started on this journey. And part of the journey for him was his upbringing was in Islam. But the more he studied Christianity, the more he realized this is true. This is historically true that Jesus is who the Bible claims he is. And I think this is really important even for people in our culture to, to, to deal with is this reality that, yes, we may have seen scandal in the church. Yes, uh, the church may, may, the Bible may teach some things that are at odds with practices and lifestyles in our culture. But if Jesus was really crucified and buried and three days later rose from the dead, it doesn't matter what our stumbling blocks and obstacles are because this is true. And we've got to climb over those things and say, I've got to get to uh, to this Jesus because it's a true story. So as we step into this passage this morning, uh, we need to say some, something pretty significant about it is this is not a myth. This is not an Easter story. This is a found, the foundational story of the world. Jesus' life, his death, burial, his resurrection, and the whole of the Bible is giving us history. This is from an archaeologist by the name of Clifford Wilson. He said, I know of no finding in archaeology that's properly confirmed, which, in, which is, I'll slow down, okay? <laughs> I was thinking, they're not following me here. I know of no finding in archaeology that's properly confirmed, which is in opposition to the scriptures. The Bible is the most accurate history textbook the world has ever seen. Because it's true, and it happened in history, and we have the artifacts. Uh, this particular account of uh, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, some people have said it's not a real account. And some people have even gone so far as to say that we're not even sure that Pontius Pilate was who this is saying he is, and that this happened under Pontius Pilate. But there was a writer in, named Publius Cornelius Tacitus. He was a Roman historian and a politician. He's widely regarded by modern scholars as the greatest Roman, one of the greatest Roman historians. He lived from 56 AD to around 120 AD, which means his, his time period is roughly similar to, to Mark, the other apostles, uh, to Timothy and others who were eyewitnesses to a lot of these events. And this is what Tacitus said Referring to Jesus, he said Jesus was the Christus from whom the name Christian had its origin. So he's making reference to Jesus as a historical figure and saying that's where the Christians came from. And then he says this about uh, Pontius Pilate. He said that Jesus suffered the extreme penalty, which was crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our own procurators, Pontius Pilate. Do you see that? This is history. What we're looking at, this is history. And when you look through the passage, there are things like Rufus and Alexander in verse 21. In that day and age, they didn't invent extraneous details. They wanted to stick to the facts. And so Mark is bringing up people 
that uh, they would know. And, and, uh, and Simon of Serene, Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross of Christ. So this is real. Jesus was a real person who really lived, who really died, who was really resurrected after having predicted the way that he was going to die. So here's what we have. A real world event in real world history that gives us real confidence that the claims of Christianity are true. This passage shows us the real history of the God over all the universe who gave himself to redeem his enemies from, their, from judgment. So we're going to talk about a claim here. We're going to talk about the purpose but we're going to talk about a God who died for us to pay a debt that we owed. So the first one, the claim, a God who died for us. And uh, as we go through the passage and we go through all of Mark's gospel, he is very much holding forth to us this reality that Jesus is God in the flesh. So take a look at the passage. Mark chapter 15, verse 2. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Now, in the Greek, it's really, the ESV makes it longer, so you have said so. But some of your translations just say something like, you say, which is actually a more accurate translation. And uh, there was a guy who did a deep dive into this phrase in the ancient world to see what does this mean? Because some people have taken this to mean Jesus is saying to Pilate, other people say, I'm the king of the Jews, and you say I'm the king of the Jews, but I'm not really the king of the Jews. That's not what I would say. But that's not what's going on here. According to the deep dive, the biblical scholar said that this was a fairly common idiom. And it served as kind of a roundabout way of saying, yeah, what you say is, is, is true, but I don't mean it the way that you mean it. So it's acknowledging the statement is broadly correct, but not technically accurate. So Jesus is saying, yes, I, I am that. I am the king of the Jews, but not as you would define the king of the Jews. I'm something more. I'm not, a, I'm not claiming just the throne of the Jews. I'm claiming the whole world for myself. I'm not planning to take a throne that's going to rival Rome. I'm planning to take a throne that is over Rome because he's the Christ. He's God's world changer. He's the one that God has sent into the world to set things right. So Jesus came to call everyone and everything to himself, not just the Jews. He's from that lineage, but he's more than that. And the Christ was always supposed to be more than that. And so Pilate's amazed at all of this. Uh, he's, and as he's listening to what Jesus is saying, uh, he's, he finds no basis for a charge. He hasn't done anything evil. He's not leading a rebellion. He's refraining from paying taxes. Uh, he's not telling people to refrain from paying taxes. And as, he's, as Pilate is talking to Jesus, in other accounts, you get the sense Pilate is becoming unnerved by the presence of Jesus in the conversation that they're having. And one of the things that commentators looked at, particularly in Mark, is the reality that uh, Pilate would have seen people quaking in their sandals with the idea of going to the cross. But Jesus isn't. He's, he's sitting quietly. He's making no curses. He's not making any threats. He's not making any bargains. He's not defending himself in every way, in any way. Do you not see what these accusations are bringing against you? So there's something going on with Jesus where he's determined to go to this cross. And in 1539, in the words of a hardened Roman centurion, a veteran of the crucifixion killing fields, 
he observed the attitude of Jesus while he was on the cross. And uh, one of the other gospel writers record this is in this passage. Uh, before the centurion speaks, he hears Jesus offer up these words. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he dies. He, he breathes his last. And the centurion says one of the most clear lines about the identity of Jesus anywhere in Mark's gospel. He says, truly this man was the son of God. So what are we seeing? 2,000 years ago, on a cross outside of Jerusalem, the God who was identified in Genesis 1-1, who created the cosmos, died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. God the Son. He was killed. He was crucified. Now, crucifixion is something that uh, it's hard to portray in movies. I think they, they've tried several times. Um, but you're aware it's actors. Probably one of the clearest explanations of what is actually going on was in John Stott's The Cross of Christ. So I'm going to read a paragraph in which he uh, explains part of it. He doesn't go into all the gory details, but he gives us enough. He said, if we had to rely exclusively on the Gospels, we would not have known what happened with crucifixion. But other contemporary documents tell us what a crucifixion was like. The prisoner would first be publicly humiliated by being stripped naked. He was then laid on his back on the ground while his hands were either nailed or roped to the horizontal wooden beam and his feet to the vertical pole. The cross was then hoisted into an upright position and dropped into a socket which had been dug for it in the ground. Usually a peg or a rudimentary seat was provided to take some of the weight of the victim's body and prevent it from being torn loose. But there he would hang, helplessly exposed to intense physical pain, public ridicule, daytime heat and nighttime cold. The torture would last for several days. Now, as I was thinking about it this week, let this speak for just a moment to some of our cultural problems with God, particularly this one, which I'm hearing more and more, is why, if there's a good God, is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Why, if there's a good God, is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Now, this passage doesn't explain it, doesn't answer that question, but it does begin to diffuse for us personally the power of that question because God understands the world's brokenness firsthand. Jesus' suffering diffuses this. If he went through it, there must be something going on with human suffering where God himself doesn't just wave his hand and make it disappear. There must be something, even though it's distasteful, there might be some very important reason for it. Some of you are, have heard the term helicopter parenting, and it came to mind when I was, I was thinking through this. Is uh, As parents, we want to remove all the pain from our children's lives, period. We don't want them to go through any kind of pain. And so helicopter parent, parenting was this movement in which parents, when kids started to get into a fight, they would step in and kind of break it up. And I've been reading more and more about how that's been detrimental in the long-term development of younger people because they have learned not to handle their own conflicts with other people. What they've learned is, I need to get an adult figure to step into this and deal with this issue. 
So they haven't really grown through the pain, through the conflict, through the difficulties. What's happened instead is they go and get somebody else to step in and say, hey, you give me what I want. You help out with this. And so what a lot of social commentators are saying is kids have to go through some really, really difficult things on their own without mom and dad around to learn from those things. The struggles they face, the hardships, even when they get bruises and bumps and break their arms or you know, hurt their legs, those kind of things, they need to go through that to see that they're going to survive that and they can get through it. They learn very positive uh, life skills from going through very difficult things, even painful things. And I was thinking about this passage. God allows the pain of the world to enable us to see how much we need what he's talking about in this passage with Jesus. And God went through more pain than I can ever imagine. God the Son went through more pain than I can ever possibly imagine. As we begin to look at this, I mean, if if we look at lawmakers, lawmakers will often make laws that benefit themselves at the expense of others. And we can look at that and say there's corruption there and there's, there's bad things that take place. But God is someone who, when he makes the laws... Uh, He takes responsibility for the world and rescues the world at great cost to himself. So now we can recognize the love, the heroism, and the majesty of Jesus. So let that sit with you for just a moment. Not just the broad, big question. Let it sit with you for just a moment with your personal struggle with pain. Jesus knows what it's like for you. He's not indifferent to your pain and your suffering. If you've ever been falsely accused of something or had people attack you, Jesus understands that. If you've ever faced rejection from other people for no good reason, Jesus understands that. If you have felt the gnawing ache of God's absence for a time in your life, Jesus was experiencing that. If you have felt full-body pain, Jesus has experienced that. The God to whom we pray does not turn a blind eye to our suffering. He doesn't just wave it away. He lets us go through it, but he understands it, and he draws close to us in the midst of it. So Jesus. Jesus was killed here in Mark chapter 15. Uh, He experienced incredible suffering. Now, it brings up a question, like, why would they kill Jesus? Well, Pilate saw it. He said it's because they were envious. And Pilate was really not wanting to get involved in the squabbles among Jews. But it's because of their envy that they ended up doing this. But it brought up a bigger question for me. How could they kill Jesus? How do you kill the Son of God? That he has life in himself. So he gives life to all things that have life. At one point, Jesus took... Uh, bread, and it divided in his hand so that just a few measly loaves of bread fed 5,000 people. How do you kill a person with that kind of power? At one point, Jesus took water, and he changed it into wine. So can you imagine them putting a crown of thorns on his head? It's not going to stay a crown of thorns. It's going to morph into a wreath of flowers maybe around him. Or maybe when they're trying to put the nails in through his flesh, maybe it just bends around him. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. So if if they're going to kill Jesus, there has to be some reason that Jesus is letting them do this. 
and it's because he was absolutely determined that he should die. So the whole time, he doesn't offer a defense. He doesn't use his power to get out of it. Instead, in Isaiah 53, verse 7, we read this. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He gave himself. That's what he did. So Pilate is surprised uh, that he died so quickly because it should have taken a lot longer for him to die. But when Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus is allowing this to take place and causing it to take place. So why? Well, here's the reason. This brings us to finally to the second point. Okay. The purpose is to pay for sin that condemns us before God. Jesus died for a crime he didn't commit. Pilate brings this out. He says, what crime has he committed? And it's only the envy of the Jewish leaders. Now, this brings up a problem uh, for us uh, as people is all wrongdoing requires a payment for it. We all recognize this culturally. Even people who don't agree with the Christian principles of uh, judgment recognize that sin requires some sort of a payment. So some of you remember several years ago, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing. And three people were killed, hundreds of people were injured, some people lost limbs in the midst of this. And uh, there's a, President Obama at the time said this. He said, we will find out who did this, we'll find out why they did this, any responsible individuals, any responsible groups will feel the full weight of justice. Now, he didn't say, we're going to go find those people and rehabilitate them so they never do something like this again. What he said was, they did something wrong, and they're going to have to pay for the thing that they did wrong. And so when we look at Scripture, that's what justice is, is, is bringing the full weight of justice for what somebody's done. Now, when we talk about justice for self, that sometimes feels a little bit uh, self-serving. But we all know that feeling when somebody that we loved is wronged, and it's love that leads us to get angry at the people who did that, right? God has more love than we have, so he has more wrath than we have. God has more knowledge than we have, and so he has more wrath than we have. And the reality is in our culture, we say, who are you to judge me? And they're right. Who are we to judge people? But the question comes back and says, well, who are we to judge ourselves and say, I'm okay. I'm really a good person. No, there has to be an external judge for this. Because as you look at the passage, the Jews here, uh, they didn't get to judge themselves. If you ask them, why are you pushing so hard for Jesus to be crucified? What they would have said was, we're doing it for the people. But even Pilate saw through that and said, no, you're not doing it for the people. You're doing it for yourself, for your own envy of this man, Jesus. He recognized that. We can't see ourselves, and so we actually are all condemned before God. We don't get the opportunity to do it for ourselves, but this is the point of the cross, is Jesus is paying for something 2,000 years ago when I'm not there. Here's a picture for you. Uh, several, several years ago when Rebecca and I were doing campus ministry, we had some students who wanted to go with us to see the Dark Knight movie. Right, it's a Batman movie. It's a Batman movie and a nerdy movie. And so we were 
uh, not going to be able to go over there and get the tickets. And everybody was saying the tickets are going to sell out. They're going to sell out quick. First Batman movie was great. This is going to be just as good. It's got the Joker in it. It's going to be fantastic. Some of you are going, the Joker, I know who that is. And some of you are going, I have no idea what he's talking about. It's a really good movie, okay? So it was a good movie. And uh, we were, and a bunch of us weren't going to be able to go over and get the ticket. And so two of our students uh, went over and got tickets to the movie. They waited in a line. They got tickets for us early in the day, right when the box office opened. And then they came back that night and picked us up, dressed as Batman and Robin. <laughs> and we all went to the movie. They gave out our tickets. And we just waltzed right past this big line of people, right into to the window, showed our ticket, walked right in, got our seats. We just waltzed right into this because somebody else paid for us to be able to go at a time when we weren't able to go. And this is similar to what Jesus is doing here. Jesus in space and time history purchased our redemption. God counted the guilt of our sins to Christ, and he in our place bore the punishment that we deserve. So Jesus was cast out so that we could waltz right in through faith in him. And the meaning of this crucifixion, that Jesus was dying for a purpose, is seen in places like 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. And we see this uh, in this passage in verses 37 and 38. Jesus utters a loud cry. He breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the curtain was pretty high up. It was a pretty heavy piece of material. And so commentators look at this and say, this was God tearing the veil to the temple. Now, the veil into the temple was the veil into the Holy of Holies. It's the, it's the place where in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was the very holy presence of God. And so the veil was torn because no one had ever been able to enter into it except for the high priest. And since Jesus as our high priest and our sacrificial lamb had offered himself for all time on the cross that day, God tore the temple veil from top to bottom. It was like Jesus was kicking down a locked door so that we could enter into his presence. So there is now no veil of spiritual separation. So nothing will come between us and God ever because Jesus has opened the way in. So on your worst day, Every single sin has been paid for by Jesus. And on your best day, your performance does not earn you anything with God. You don't outstrip the cross by your obedience, and you don't outpace the saving work of Jesus every single day. Now, that's good news for me. You know why? Because I'm coming off of Thanksgiving, and we were in a room full of people and I could see all of the, the stuff in my heart coming forward. Stuff that when, you know, we're, you know, family dynamics, you have family dynamics, right? Stuff that was in my heart that's there that I feel like I've gotten past. And all of a sudden, that stuff gets drudged back up again in my own heart. And I'm feeling the weight of all of this. And the only thing I can do is to say, I'm not looking to my progression through all these years because there may not be a lot of progression and growth in this area, but instead I'm looking to the cross of Christ, period, for me and 
for me to be able to step into relationships with people that sometimes are very hard. And some of you are looking at me like, yes, that was my Thanksgiving too. It was your Thanksgiving. And the reason this becomes important is, is, is we begin to look at the Christian life. We think it's my obedience that brings me into a right relationship with God. And so the right relationship with God is ever in front of me, but I'm not there yet. And so everything that I do has this sense of terror about it is I've got to get there somehow, but it keeps moving further and further away. I realize the standards are that far away. I can't do it. But what we see in the gospel is this moment with Jesus dying for our sins and then his resurrection that came afterwards, this is held up as the motivation. We're not entering into the, the presence of God by what we do. If you're in Christ, you're already there. You're already in a right relationship with God, and you live out of that. Right? Let me show you how this works. So we're going to go back to the beginning with the Iranian man uh, that we talked about as we began. Is he's got this question about how what makes me right with God? Is it something that I do to make be right with Allah, or is it something that Jesus does? And he's realizing, if I make the wrong choice here, then I'm probably not going to end up in a good place for the rest of eternity. So he starts wrestling and struggling with this, and he starts crying out to God, not knowing which one to cry out to. And he finally comes up with this, this kind of harebrained scheme, as he said. I, I, he read through the Old Testament parts of it, and Jesus says, where can I go? I want to come and present my case before you. And he said... I'm, so I'm going to present my case before God and, and hear from him directly. So he took 22 sleeping pills. He said he woke up in a psych ward. didn't take his life. And so he had to kind of like back up and say, okay, uh, that, that, that was God preserving my life because I wouldn't have gone to a good place at that point. But he's pretty serious about this question. How do I know? So he, the, Quran, the Quran says one thing and salvation is forever out of reach. How do I get there? And then the gospel says something else. And so he got John 3.16 in front of him and just read it and read it and meditated and meditated on it. He said, I knew historically that Jesus was who he said, but my Muslim upbringing kept me from being able to believe him. So I read and read until the tears started flowing from my eyes. And I prayed and prayed until the tears were coming down. And I recognized the grace of God that he forgives my sins fully and completely only in Jesus. Allah can't do it. And a mom can't do it. I can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. And that's the point of the cross here. This is the story of us all. I love that in some ways Pontius Pilate, who is the one who sent Jesus to the cross, he's just kind of a footnote in history. I love that the people who envied Jesus in this passage, who were trying to make a name for themselves, we don't even know their names. But Jesus' story is their story. And Jesus' story is your story. That's the point. Is my relationship with God starts and ends with Jesus. If I don't have him, I have nothing. But if I have him, I have everything in him. If you're in Christ... You have everything in him. Let me pray for us.
a willing to-ness. Not just a willingness, but a willing to-ness. You weren't just willing passively to go if you needed to, but you had your face set like flint. You were determined to go to the cross for my sake and for the sake of all who call upon you. That is the best news ever. I pray that you would help us for it to not just be outside of us, but to pray and pray and to read and read until it gets into our hearts. It brings tears, it brings joy, it brings uh, repentance, it brings confession, but it surely brings assurance of your love that you died for us. Would you bless us and would you be with us and cause the truth of Christ to become more and more central to us and the way we live our lives here. Give us that assurance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.